Zone is a podcast on sci-fi, philosophy, religion, politics, gaming, and anything else taboo. And the PhD studies of religion and the shared love of food, coffee, and cats. It's very formal. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, How you doing? We are in different locations, and I mean different this time physically, not just um, different rooms. Yes. Uh, where are you? I am at home on my bed. Oh, okay. <laughs> I am at ACU, uh, the Strathfield campus, in a library room um, uh, on the third floor. So it says 60234, room number four, I've booked. Um, nice. And I've booked the same room for next week. And I am drinking a Cateres coffee. Now, um, capitalism. Is a thing that's going to come up today with with how but let me just say that yes. at strathfield there is a need for more shops because <laughs> yeah. the, the coffee is shit in strathfield the coffee's terrible and the coffee here there's only one cafeteria and it's 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 okay coffee but they are so slow they're yeah. so so slow because you don't you just don't have a choice of going going anywhere else and they've got like four or five staff just standing around looking at you. Yeah. And the guy like makes the coffee and he's like really slow with doing it. And then he cleans the machine and then looks at the order and then looks at the machine again before he picks up anything. And it's just like draining and then blah. Anyway. Um, no, I never get coffees out when I'm at work. It's just disappointing. Because you work at Sheffield, yeah? Yeah. In a slightly different spot where you are, but yes, I do. Yeah. I'm near the station. Well, at least you got good fur there. That's good. Yeah, there's nothing I can eat, though, in any room room, so I have to be really clever about bringing food in, otherwise I'll, I have no food. <laughs> I think you made that sound like it was a, a, a devilish plan, so I have to be clever about bringing food. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm off work at the moment. My doctor went to Alaska, so I am not working Mondays, hence why I could do the podcast today. Hmm. And tomorrow I have the start of the sacred feasts um, thing. So eight hours of teaching is not going to mix well because you've got your um, first catch up in the morning. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, your second catch up, rather. Yeah, for econ that yeah. no one came to last time, which was very sad. So let, let's let's go. So what have you been doing this last week? Starting with Tuesday, what did you do in the morning? I sat there for two hours in the room. <laughs> and no one turned up. No one came. I had, like, and at first I couldn't access the room because it was really frustrating. And I had to walk up and find a staff member to let me in. And I sat there for two hours and just did my own thing and no one came. And so this Thursday when I had the, tut- the econ shoots, I basically said, if anyone's doing their presentation next week, please come and talk to me because it's really awkward to sit there for two hours on there. So yeah. we'll see if anyone comes. The presentations were mixed. They were okay. They were just very, um, some of them was a little bit difficult to understand and, and I, it's hard to kind of um, mark someone. You don't want to seem like a dick either and mark somebody because obviously English isn't their first language. So it's yeah. a real hard mix between marking fairly but also like, you know, I don't know, I'm finding it a bit difficult. But they're all really nice kids so um, mm. I'm just I'm just doing my best and just going to try and help them in a way that, you know, is pretty easy like nice friendly environments that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I'm really nervous presenting too, so I just want to be like friendly and and supportive. There's not much else I can 
Mm. No, I understand. Uh, what else have you been doing? My thing for RLST 105, the first atheism essay is back. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not great essays. If anyone's listening, pick up your game. No, oh, <laughs> I don't think any of my They're all They're oh. just um, almost like the last year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I, won't, I won't go into detail, but um, yeah, I just, I'm a bit frustrated because I did really try and, um, I mean, it's anonymous, but I tried to really plug with my class what I expect for an essay and I've had like some I've read a just a few sentence paragraph I'm like bro why is this just a few sentence paragraph yeah, yeah. I don't uh, Guardian papers used as just like normal so, sort of in the pace of academic sources too it's like no nah. <laughs> I think there's a time and place but yeah it's a problem when you've only got a couple of different sources and then there's only a Guardian article backing up everything. You can just tell that they've rewritten an article like someone else's work. Just kind of annoying. Um, yeah. Very similar to the AACU um, uh, you know, first first year, first early assignment stuff, uh, early feedback rather, um, assignments that they're, they're doing at the moment um, that I'm marking. Some no citations at all. Like nothing. Really? Yeah, yeah, just opinion pieces. Uh, yeah, happened a couple of times at Sydney as well. So there's, I don't think there's any difference. After two years or a year and a half working at both universities yeah. um, and then Newcastle as well, there's no difference between the student body at any of the three universities. There is just students. That's all it is. Um, and I think it, it's a measure of the teachers as to what they've got so far. So it really annoys me when I come to like a, second or a third year subject as I did at Sydney a couple of times um, and they've had um, you know the teaching for whatever school that they're doing so we, we don't have minors and majors in religious studies as much as what we have in the past and you have people that float through doing um, you know electives and they can be a third year or second year elective had to mark like third year stuff and you, you can tell that they just haven't been taught critical thinking before um, and, yeah. and even just um, rudimentary stuff like where a heading goes or what a heading is for, what an introduction is for, um, and then how to use um, subheadings and stuff. It's just it's not readily taught, and that's really the tutor's job for the first year. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and it's so a problem. I'm, I'm news stories. I just think unless you can do it in a way that's relevant to that news story, and you're making a comment about contemporary culture or about how a certain topic is viewed in the eyes of media hmm. if you're using media as like a, a source base so like something quality, uh, like um you know like new atheism is defined as a white society like or maybe not even that but any sort of thing that would be better with some sort of proper evidence i just think it's lazy hmm. i'll be strict with that hmm. Yeah, I, I understand that. I, I like the mixture of popular culture into a serious essay. So I, I have in my own work previously quoted um, people that did like crazy YouTube videos and that sort of thing as examples of philosophical points that I'm making. But I've got the primary text there as well. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and it's relevant to the media rather than being like, you yeah. know, I, I should be able to read and you should it should be in context of saying, Oh, and you know, philosophies become popular in in, in showed in various YouTube channels rather than being like, mm. um, 
this is this is what philosophy means and then the, that reference is a youtube video do you know what i'm saying like there's a difference between the two i feel like yeah yeah no it's a skillful way to do it. um and yeah. and doing comparative analysis i think helps that way um but yeah students commonly just don't know how to do it um and i, I guess that's a, that's our, our job in how to teach that and i like it i like doing it um and yeah i, think it's really I find this stuff easy pretty yeah. easy to because it, like these are what I like to see, and this is what I don't like to see. And if you keep doing it, then I'll keep telling you not to. So I'm trying to be really thorough with the marking feedback too, so that for the major essay, hopefully it catches it. So I'm only marking 25 pages, so I think it pays pretty thoroughly. Ah, uh, 25. Okay, so I've got 75 at ACU, and then probably yeah. 40 odd for Sydney for Sacred Feasts, um, and then thankfully I don't have any for Newcastle. There's a marker there. That's, yep. that's helping me do those stuff because they're big essays and they're all philosophy stuff. I'd love to read them, but I just I, I will, would not have the time this semester to do all three of those things at once. Um, guess, but yeah, I've yeah. been um, marking. What else have we been doing? Oh, we had a bit of a shit weekend of just cleaning. So Tom decided to extract money and also um, start processing some wax in the laundry and then kept dropping things because he was really tired. So he dropped like a bucket of wax all over the place. Oh, that's not good. So he'd end up trapsing honey all through the floor, everywhere. So we had to mop the house. We basically spent all day Saturday and Sunday either doing stuff with honey or cleaning up from the honey. Mm. It's, a, it's a sticky situation. <laughs> Uh, maybe we need a soundboard for like wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, but after that, uh, I've just been still reading Walter Miller's short stories, like stories for us to do later. Um, he's a writer that I really like, so I'm enjoying that. Cool. Um, and oh, that's about yeah. I've got this film, a science fiction film festival coming up this weekend, which will be fun. So three films that I'm going to. What oh. what three films have you chosen? The films? Yeah. Um, I'll try and get the names. One of it's called Norman. I sort of picked them all like last month. So I'm um, seeing a film called Dust Let's See a Land film, which I think is like a Swedish science fiction film. One called A Living Dog and one called Norman on Sunday. Hmm. I, don't, I can't remember what any of them are about, but I'll give a review next week. That sounds good. Sounds yeah, good. and what about you? You've got some exciting news. I do have some exciting news. So it's, it's out there. Um, Jody and I are having another child. Uh, in March, and a girl, which is exciting. Um, yeah, my my hope is that they're born on the 29th of February, just before, and then they'll be a leap year baby like me. Is is next year? Yeah, next year is the 29th. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, now how old are you? Have we worked that out? I think I'm. I'm not very good at time tables. I think I'm seven. I'll be turning seven. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I love that story. Um. Yeah, so there's there's that uh, due on the twelfth of um, March, which is not too far away. Um, oh. There's that. Uh, so Jack and Isaiah um, spent lots of time with them over the weekend, being Father's Day. Um, I got some pretty cool things. I got like, a t-shirt, and um, I got what else did I get? Oh, I got a disco ball and a disco like colourful light thing. So I wanted a colourful light display thing that you you know you get in clubs which like put out like blue and red LEDs all over the, the roof. Yeah. Um, yeah, for your gaming room. Yeah, for my gaming room. So 
uh, like I've got it all so that there's like Christmas lights on all of the shelves so you can sort of see. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to replicate what neon, that, that sort of neon Vogue uh, 1980s look in, in the room. And I wanted the disco light for the ceiling. And um, so Jody, the story is she found it and then they're walking through a shop and as I saw a disco ball <laughs> and he goes, look, Mama, we have to get that for Dad. And she's like, no, we've got the disco light. And he goes, no, he wants a disco ball. Party time. Disco ball. <laughs> so um, she was basically forced into buying a disco ball for me. She's <laughs> quite funny. Um, so I put that up and it actually looks kind of cool because um, the lights like, reflect off it. Are you going to boogie woogie later? Yeah, <laughs> boogie woogie, yeah. Man boogie all over the place. Um, yeah. So that was on Sunday. Um, sort of going backwards because I don't remember anything at the moment because my life's just crazy busy. Saturday, where we, oh, we went to, we went to Jody's grandmother's retirement village, put on a market fair thing. So you can go there and they have like a, um, they had a, a, a chocolate wheel, you know, those chocolate wheels where you buy a ticket and you spin it yeah. and, and they called it a chocolate wheel. So it was in chicken and then it was all like chicken puns around chocolate wheel and <laughs> we bought a couple of tickets and then we didn't win and I saw them get out the prize and I had an esky I'm like what an esky there and there was prizes I thought on the table but it wasn't for that the chocolate wheel prizes or the chocolate wheel prizes was frozen bits of chicken are you serious yeah <laughs> <laughs> so well they were in trays but yeah they was just <laughs> sitting in an esky just great, but they had um Devonshire tea, uh, like proper scones with cream and jam, and that, that's awesome. Old old lady scones and cream, just yeah, amazing. Um, so there's that, and then we went out afterwards. Um, Friday I was at the shops. Thursday I was at the shop. Um, I was nice and busy, and then Wednesday I taught. Oh yeah, I taught taught on Julia Kristeva, the um, objection. Oh yeah, how did that? It was really good. I was really worried about that, um, that, that, yeah, lecture because I thought uh, it's going to be quite hard for students to grasp what I'm actually talking about, like that changed moment versus um, just the developmental stage of going back and forth between objection. Um, but it worked out really well, and the students that were there seemed to get it, um, and I filled up the two hours quite easily, ran out of time a little bit, but that's okay. Um, this week I am teaching on Levinar, so I wrote the um, essay on Levinar, um, and then next week is Heidegger. Um, so it's really getting into it now, like Dasein and self and otherness and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I kind of I should have thinking about the semester now and where the breaks were. I really should have put. Um, Levinar on one side of the holidays and then um, Heidegger over the other side. So students have an extra two weeks of just engagement of those that stuff. Because um, it's, it's quite hard, I think, to grasp for, for anyone once they're first going into it. There's some students in the class that have never done philosophy, like philosophy units formally. Um, I find Levinar harder because they have all like the weird terms, right? There's like three terms and they're really confusing. Emmanuel Levinar. No, he, he talks about um, 
there was like three different words that you bring up and there's like a picture and a diagram and you're like, what is that? I mean, I think it's uh, someone else. No, no, no. Um, no, Levinas talks about how, um, so it's spelled Levinas, L E V I N A S, Emmanuel Levinas. He's yeah. a Jewish, Jewish French writer. Um, <clears throat> and he takes Dasein. So Heidegger is interested in how I perceive you as my, um, as the other or, you know, as the object. So. You, Tara Smith, you're like mm-hmm. we're not in the same room, but that's you know, it, it doesn't really matter for either Levinar or or um, Heidegger. But we are having a one-to-one conversation here, and I am grasping your being, um, uh, sorry, your your selfness. Um, uh, so mm-hmm. you are the object to my being, and my being is um, conceptualizing what you are in your otherness. So that aspect of that conceptualizing is Dasein. So that's the space where I exist as a person, ascertaining what you are talking about, or what you what you are, what you are being is, and being can be you know a coffee cup, or it could be my bag, or whatever. It doesn't matter. And then, so Levener takes that and says, "Well, that's all well and good for Heidegger, but he's a Nazi, <laughs> and he, he's interested only in." the self like he's only interested in how you are ascertaining everything else so you are the center of the universe and Levinas says well that's not the case we are a communal species or a communal body and this shared experience of the other is really the key so that's what interests him that the other the look of the other so the way that that the other will look at me shakes me and requires me to react it requires me to act and requires me to be um, in a space of existence. So we spoke a lot about that with Axolotl. Yes. Um, yeah, a couple of weeks ago. So that's that's where we're, we're talking about. But I'm writing about all this stuff at the moment and trying to give students a, an understanding of that um, in full knowledge that these students have no idea about, or some of them had no idea about the conceptualization of selfhood and then unconsciousness before the start of semester. So they've gone yeah. from that to now talking about Dasein and um, otherness. It's, it's quite a leap. Um, but we'll get there. I That's think. cool, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I've been marking. Lots yeah. and lots and lots of marking. <laughs> um, which means I haven't had a chance to play anything really. Um, I set up the TV. Oh, actually, I have a pickup. I picked up the TV. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's called a Bang & Olufsen TV. These um, TVs were $10,000 back in 2001. Um, yeah. So they're really, really expensive. And the lady had it listed on Gumtree, and she bought it new at the time um, and then can't work it with her modern, um, like, Foxtel box, and that's all she's been watching it on. She doesn't play games with it at all. And I picked it up for just a hundred dollars. And the cool thing about it, I've got to watch TVs. But the cool thing about this TV is it's on a single pole, and <laughs> you get the remote out and you press a button, and the TV actually turns physically towards Amazing. you. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's cool. the most ridiculous rich person TV ever, filled with all these stupid um, functions that you don't really need in life. Um, and every time I show it to people, they're like, "Why do you have that?" Well, rich people don't like to, to get up and turn the TV. You just, <laughs> you know, 
why why do that? Just put the motor in the thing and then turn it. And it does. It just does this little turn. And you can set it. <laughs> you can set it memory as to where the different spots it will move to. So when you turn it on, it can just move around and face you a certain way and then turn off and move the other way. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I picked that up through the week, which is fun. Nice. Yeah. Um, that's it for me, I think. Awesome. Should we start our discussion on how? Yeah. Um, I think to intro this, um, I'll play a short clip from uh, Alan Ginsberg actually reading how. Um, mm -hmm. And you can get an, an experience, or the, the listeners can get an experience of how he um, would engage with his poetry. You mean how or how? How. How and how. Is that, do I say that weird too? <laughs> no, no, but it just how. <laughs> Is it like um, in Queensland, everyone said I said booth really weird? Yeah, it's like booth. Booth? Yeah. <laughs> or booth. Anyway, booth. Okay. Play, play it. Enjoy it. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo and the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated who passed through universities with radiant, cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake-like tragedy among the scholars of war, who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull. So that was Alan Ginsberg's reading of Hal. Hal, did you like that? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I really like listening to it um, rather than reading. I find I get a bit distracted reading. I, I'm i not normally someone that likes to read a lot of poetry, mm. but that's why I kind of like beat poetry because of the kind of rhythm and, and the way it sounds. Right? And, I, and it was, I mean, it's meant to be read, right? Uh, sorry, read aloud, not read like this. Yeah, yeah it's this performance. So maybe we, we talk about what you just said there with beat poetry. So Alan Ginsberg, um, did you want to introduce him or would you like me to bring him into the room? You should introduce him, but I'm going to talk a little bit about other aspects of his personality a bit later. Okay, all right, cool. Um, so I guess, yeah, the controversies in relation to um, uh, mental health and homosexuality comes up with how. So we'll leave that to the side for the moment. But just, just yep. about Alan himself. Uh, he's born as Erwin Alan Ginsberg and just went by Alan for his entire life, basically. Um, born in 1926, died uh, quite late, 1997, and he survived most other people from the Beat Generation. Um, so he's part of what the Beat Generation is. Basically, it's a generation which... Um, grew up in the 1950s um, post-war and tried to fight against the ideas of um, continuation of the, the set establishment, you know, more about freedom of expression and more about freedom of, um, freedom of lifestyle choices, you know, away from the banality of 
working nine to five jobs, which were sought after really um, at the the end of 1945. You imagine you've come back from war, um, uh, or you you know your partner's been in in war. Um, you know the normality of the American way of life of having a house, three kids, and a dog. Um, would have seen like some sort of paradise or the beat generation saw that as a, a shackles almost. Um, yeah. Well, it's like, it's like one of the two kind of, it's like true counterculture moving around, especially focused around America. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's also important to say that it's, it's a very masculine movement as well. There were a lot of women beat poets that never really got much of a mention either. Which Absolutely. I think, yeah. Um, there were, it was a, um, a very pro um, equal rights movement, though. So there, there were um, uh, pro uh, gay rights and pro um, African rights movements coming out of the beach uh, generation or from the beach generations, and then particularly the look to Eastern religions and Eastern cultures. But you're right, from um, the female perspective, um, is largely silent. Um, by a lot of these these authors who are interested more in, in pursuing um, gay rights. Um, yeah, it's very homoerotic and homo-mas- like kind of like uber-masculine, a lot of the poems mm. I find. Yeah. And a lot of women say that a lot of the beat poets that were women around just didn't get much of a mention. No. Uh, and that yeah, there's been a lot of critiques coming later saying, well, you know, like why was there, there wasn't much room in, this, in beat poetry for women and why was that? And so it was more about ma- men men's experiences rather than experiences of that era as well. Yeah, I found that also with, um, so one of my favourite authors of all time is Jack Kerouac, um, yeah. uh, and there's William S. Burroughs as well as, as others, but Jack Kerouac, um, he's not very, um, he's, he's, he's not very, uh, not welcoming to women, but he's he's more, he's just open about how, He's not interested in being tied down to anything or anyone. Um, I think it's on the road where he talks about how there's a woman that falls in love with him, and he's just he leaves because he says, "Well, that's not the point. I'm 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 on the road. I'm going. You know, this is yeah. this this drawing towards um, some other ends, uh, which is sad because it's it shows like there's this unrequited love. Um, at least that's from his perspective. Um, <laughs> the, the women at the time might have just been as dismissive of him um, too, um, which w- would have been funnier. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he was friends. Um, so Allen Ginsberg was friends with with Kerouac and Burroughs. Um, and it was like a boys' club, right? They all knew each other pretty well. Yeah, yeah, and they travelled for different periods and different times, and they'd have these these um, meetings where they would all go and read their literature to each other. Um, so Kerouac, um, famously took the elements of beat poetry and and applied it to long, um, long written literature, fiction, um, and would sit there and write books on a single roll of teletext, um, paper, um, which gets fed into a, a typewriter. Um, and, uh, this is where, where Ginsburg, um, wrote how. And, and how he engages with how. Um, but these are performance pieces. Um, and they're not, they're not, um, they don't, I don't think they translate as well to written word. Um, yeah. And you were mentioning this as well. So, how did you, uh, how did we listen to or read this? 
I listen to, I like watching the animation as well with it. I don't like just reading. Uh, so just like kind of listening. I like to also be watching. So I really like the, um, the excerpts from how's, uh, how the movie with James Franco in it and the, the animations that go along with it. I feel like it just enriched a lot of the imagery for me. Mm. Um, and so I, when I was listening, I was listening to just on YouTube, they've got a few snippets. It's such a good film. And I found that that really helped me engage better with it. And the images kind of come a bit more alive like that for mm. me. Mm. What about you? How did you listen to the um, I've read it a lot. So I read it um, when I was first, I think, 19 or 20, something like that. Um, I, I just moved to the city and discovered um, Kerouac and then discovered Ginsburg from, from that. I had no idea about them prior to that. So I've, I've read them um, quite quite a lot and I've read them in different forms. So there's like just the Penguin editions and then online editions and then there's a book that I've got at home of, of Ginsburg's work and it's got just um, black and white photos from his life. Um, so some of the things that he's mentioning during these, these poems um, are photographed next to the poem. I think that that works really well. Um, so for this, um, for this episode, I read it um, separately and then I also watched the Franco um, movie. Um, I like that movie. I think it's a yeah, good I like movie. it. Too. Mm. Um, and I think it it, it shows uh, Ginsburg's untarnished state. Um, uh, well, it shows him in an, in an untarnished way, rather. So just an open, honest expression of a character which is struggling um, with sexuality, struggling with politics at the time. Um, and then trying to find his way with with writing poems that uh, don't fit to your regular four four stanza or um, haiku models. It's this this poem breaks all of those rules. Yeah. Mm. No, I really like the poem, especially where like Moloch and and like feeling it creates of like kind of being in a place where you know you're kind of trapped and stuff. And I think most people reading it can really kind of um like i i'm not super into all the imagery i don't get all the similes or all the things he's saying but it's like a feeling that i kind of get throughout no matter it doesn't really matter it's sort of like a just a general feeling i think it conjures it's very emotive hmm. and that the, they the sort of they don't always have to make sense the similes it's just it's also how the it sounds and and how it feels and to me it's like that the whole poem you're kind of feeling a bit angry at society i think that's kind of the point and it kind of reads to me as quite an angry poem and and kind of like uh why is this happening and and he's sort of the lost view about his, his partner that it's written with carl solomon or one of his lovers or something who's getting um uh he's in a mental institution as well i think that's part three yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so um the Hal is referred to as um, Hal for Carl Solomon, and Carl Solomon is uh, was put into a mental, mental institution. And the last stanza, so the, the, the poem's actually broken up into three parts, yeah. um, and the last part does start with you know, Carl Solomon, I'm, in, I'm with you in Rockland, where you're madder than I am. I'm with you in Rockland, and then it just keeps repeating, I'm with you in Rockland, yeah. I'm with you in Rockland, but every second line is... An address to Carl, uh, you know, um, as as um, Ginsburg is trying to guess what he's actually feeling at the time, um, and saying that really he's the undeserving one here in the mental institution. That yeah, everyone it's really else, sad, actually, that yeah. part of it's quite sad, and, and I feel like quite different to the rest. And when you 
watching it with um in the Franco kind of the clip, you're like, hang on, how did we get here? It's almost like a different poem. Um, but mm. I really like it a lot um, as well about that kind of the emotions created there and uh, and the, the Moloch and the repetition of Moloch and stuff. And, yeah. yeah. Well, this is – so the first part, I think, is um, an element of where he sees society um, at yeah. the time. You know, I, I, it starts with I, I saw the best – Minds in my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. And it just continues on and on and on. Lots of commas, not many full stops. Um, and it's meant to be read out loud. And I find actually when I'm reading it, I also, I'm almost, I'm, I'm reading this differently than I do normal literature. Um, quote unquote normal. But, you know, normally um, you, you, have a book in front of you and you're just um, engaging with the, the words and, and taking them in um, and, and getting them. But this, you almost have to read this out in your head um, if you're not re- reading it out loud. Um, and that's the only way to get through it because of all the commas and broken grammatical stri- uh, style. I think yeah, that no. that's, that's on purpose. Um, you know, the first, the first part is just about society. You know, all of the people that he sees, um, uh, how they engage with the world and what's going on during that period. And there's lots of um, dropping of, of terms and names in there. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's also interesting that he, he has different reasons. of. So I think he, like at three different points in his life he says how's about something different. And I think that like hmm. he says it's um, biography. First he says it's not a biography of his experiences but – Hal is like a kind of ode to the beat generation. And then he says it's about his mother who's going into um, uh, like a psychiatric – well, when he was younger, his mom had a lot of uh, mental issues as well. And then it's also about his – about Carl Solomon. So I think that – I think reading about Ginsburg's life as well, he changes a lot as a person throughout his career mm-hmm. as well and not necessarily for the better. I think he actually towards the sort of middle and end, he becomes a bit of a um, very – Kind of complicated and controversial figure too, which kind of for me affected a little bit how I would read it afterwards. Hmm. Um, so I think it's interesting how he changes a bit as well. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's hard. It, it, he does refer to his mother in the poem, so I think he's writing all of the instances. He's probably just mm. highlighting different points. Um, yeah. And and seeing that that fits during that period. Um, in the second part of the um, the three part uh, how it's all about this Moloch. Um, so Moloch is the it's it's almost like a, a preying upon society, um, like this underhanded aspect of um, something which preys upon um, what he sees as good. Yeah, no, definitely. Like it affects babies, affects you before you know. It affects creativity. It's to me, I read it as like the machine. Like yeah. that's what these is more like as like suppressing everybody and probably capitalism, of course. Yeah, the cartoon. Um, trying to bring it to my mind of what Moloch. It's like a it's a moving machine building thing. Is that right? It's like it's got bull horns and a bull mouth. Yeah. To me, it looks like a big, um metal bull. Yeah. Yeah. And that's capitalism, which people yeah. point towards, like he's you know pro 
communist, but communist is a, a problematic term and doesn't mean communism as it does today, but, you know, pro-socialist um, idealism. Yeah. Because isn't the word something like we lifted him up to the we lifted Moloch carried it on our backs or something? I thought yeah. the image was quite. Um, I can't remember exactly. Um, Moloch, but like it's clearly it? yeah, Moloch whose skyscrapers stand in the long streets like endless Jehovah's Moloch whose factories dream and croak in the fog. Moloch whose smokestacks and antennae crown the city. Like to me, it's definitely the city, the machine, capitalism, mm. all those sort of. Negative, and it even says, um, Moloch, Moloch, robot apartments, invisible suburbs, skeleton treasuries, blind capitals, demonic industries. I think it's everything, but mm. also personal for what uh, Ginsburg's also felt like probably has been grinding him down too, like not just society, but him as well as an individual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously feels captured, and then he's angry, um, and then it gets revealed what he is really angry about i think in that third part where carl solomon so it almost is like this crescendo of, of noise and you can see in the first two um sections the the lines are really long with lots of commas and, you know it's very very long and then in the last part there's no commas at all it's just short stuccoed sentences of Carl Solomon, I'm with you in Rockland. I'm mad where you are madder than I am. I'm with you in Rockland, but you must feel very strange. And it's like there's this massive amount of noise that comes out and then a quietness. You can wow. imagine him standing inside these packed um, beat poet rooms where people are, um, uh, there's no booking times. So you just rocked up with your poem and then would read them in these these sections of people drinking yeah. and you know critiquing each other's work um it, it would have been quite powerful i think at that time where you've got him screaming at these different points and there's full of explanation marks all the way through and then this quietness of carl solomon um, yeah no definitely yeah i think it's like a real sadness and the way that james franco reads it i think similar to it's like it, the build up and things and then the quietness in the last verse and i think it's a uh, last sort of section i think it's quite impressive i mean and then I, i've read also like i tried to have a look and there's not a lot of female voices at all in his poem like the only women that really get mentioned are his mother and the only mention of girls are either in a multitude or uh what is it A million girls trembling in the sunset. Oh, no, sorry, that's someone else. Oh, yeah, in how women, they seem quite interchangeable. So a million girls trembling in the sunset in a landscape dotted with innumerable layers of girls. So there's not much female. There's a lot of cock and balls, but there's not a lot of women in yeah. this pop. Yeah, yeah, and he's, well, he's homosexual. So he's this, and that's where his, um, his wants and vision is with the male figure. Um, so it's, it is a sexual poetry uh, poem. Um, in that regard, um, and yeah, you're right. But there, there are a couple of mentions of girls, um, but it's just like it's a non-mention um, almost. There's not like he doesn't give a female character, and then there's a voice attributed. There's just no female at all. Well, there is. There's multiple of them and layers, multiple layers of like L-A-Y-S, like multiple women to have sex with. Oh, there's a million girls trembling in the sunset. So there are girls mentioned, and when they're mentioned, they're mentioned as being in like uh, kind of interchangeable and not a single figure. It's sort of almost uh, like... Yeah, 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 that's... I agree, yeah. yeah so it's, um, it's not the um, 
they're, they're almost not given a character um, essence. It's um, there's the scene as what buildings you mean, like that sort of. Yeah, or just like um, I think it's in relation to men having sex with them as well, and so mm. it's sort of like only women are only looked at in the gaze of men, and and I think that's a critique of the beat poetry in general is that women are just seen as like an experience, not not really individuals in their in their own right. Mm. Mm. And so I think that that to me, I mean, I'm sort of doing this a little bit tongue in cheek because I've had to kind of for the last two episodes on Ellison have to deal with a fair bit of shit about you having trouble moving past. And so I feel like if we're not going to be doing a feminist reading of Howl as well, then we're, it's a bit critical. So I'm, I've decided to do it. <laughs> I, I assumed that that might have been the case. Um, but I think... Yeah, and so, uh, so the, my main issues, like, women aren't really mentioned when they are. It's sex, sort of sexualized. But also, I mean... There's the whole elephant in the room, which is, and this is, I'm going to just say a trigger warning because this is pretty full on. So if anybody wants to turn off now, but uh, Ginsburg was like a pretty well known uh, pedophile as well, which is pretty dramatic. Uh, yes and no. So yeah, like pedophile, or he he liked younger men. Con- uh, okay. Cons- well, he liked younger men. Consenting boys. younger men. And slept with young boys. Yeah. Yeah, but they're not under eighteen. They're consenting. Uh he he was a big advocate for um, NAMBLA or whatever, which is NAMBLA, which is the uh, North American Man Boy Love Association. Yes. And he wrote. Um, he said, like the whole labeling pedophiles as child molesters, everybody likes little kids. All you've got to do is walk through the Vatican, see all those little statues of little prepubescence, pubescence, and postpubescence. Naked kids have been a staple of delight for centuries for both parents and onlookers. But a label pedophilia as criminal is ridiculous. So he's actually pro, quite pro man and boy relationship. Yeah, yeah. But I think in, in reality, I don't think he had a shared relationship with a child. Um, rather, it was... Even in poetry, he wrote a poem called Sweet Boy, Give Me Your Ass" in the 1960s as well. So I would be very surprised. And there's a, a lot of his friends around that time, people that knew him, have labeled him as a pedophile. Wouldn't be surprised if he's advocating it for it politically. He's not also practicing it. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's problematic. It's very, very problematic. You're right. Um, but what he, what he terms this boy as well, like these these terms are interchangeable and have altered through time um, as well. Uh, you know, he's coming from 1950s. Boy meant, you know, you'd refer to an African as boy all the time as well. Like it's just this denigration of you're not a full man and not a full like adult, yeah but i adult. mean a lot of the men in the beat poetry is mostly with underage boys it's not like a unknown thing i mm. mean i just i think it's probably more likely than not that he was and the fact that he would advocate for association that that set, that promotes love between men and young and boys is probably it's not great and so no. when you're reading it do you find it problematic when he's talking about like cock and balls because you don't know whether he's talking about boys and, and yeah, you know, the yeah, yeah. yeah so i guess i'm just doing this to be a bit like a bit um like this doesn't have to be what we talk about but it's sort of like if we're going to be talking about it for every other text we're analyzing then we have to do it equally for each text and so yeah. this is a problematic aspect his character oh, uh, okay. anyway. so, i don't know like how 
can we still find value in text? And we're coming back to the same issue. Can you still find value in text written by people that are flawed and that have flawed aspects in it? Can we still find value in the text at the end of the day? Hmm. Well, it's, it is a good question. Um, the movie is quite graphic in certain regards um, and, and is unexpected. So Jodie knew that I liked uh, The Beat Generation um, and I like... Get Kerouac's my favourite, so I've always liked Kerouac. You know, On the Road, I think, is a really good coming-of-age book to, to engage with and read. And, yeah, um, I read it. I like it. Yeah, and then it's, it was um, tangentially then um, Howl and Ginsberg afterwards, and I like the performance aspect of Ginsberg, not so much the material um, or even the anti-capitalist values um, or the open sexuality regard, uh, regarding that. But we watched Howl together. And there are those things which come up and she pauses and she's like, do you like this film? Like, is that something you like? Like, this is odd for you to like because it's different from anything else that I'm, I'm really into. Um, so I think, I think you're right. Um, there are aspects of it which are um, very problematic um, and of, um, of their age which don't read well. But then... There are some things which have come back. So if we watched, if we read this about 15 years ago mm. and there was, the second line is dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. That's a bad word at that time. Now, mm. You're it, saying that certain books and certain things written in a certain context maybe belong to a certain context in history as well. Absolutely, but they've changed as well again. So it's now okay in America for you to refer, like just openly on the media, that that is the black folk. Whereas yeah. 15 years ago, 10 years ago, you could not say that. You said African-American folk. But then there's been a pushback from um, uh, liberation, African-American, and I'm using that term um, very loosely, but you know, black voices in America that have said, okay, um, my family has been here for 150 years. None of us are from Africa. We're actually more European than anything else, but we have black skin, so we are referred to as blacks, and they've yeah. fought against that. So now those terms, Negro and black, have actually come back, but there is a nuanced understanding about what is actually being used here. Um, but where I read this when I was um, uh, 19, 20 that's in 2001 um that's holy shit that's almost 18 years ago i just said that you know one of those realizations that you realize that you're really old yeah um yeah it'll come to your life too <laughs> um but when i read that and read you know negro stress i'm like oh that's that's a problem that's bad um but now reading it it's it's altered and it's changed um, and it's this fluid state of, of language. Um, so I think that that's, that's an issue as well with his work. And then beyond that, there is the, the, the problem of um, what, what homoerotic nature he's talking about, but then more so than the boy aspect, because the boy thing can be interchangeable. What I thought that you'd bring up is the unconsensuality of some of the, the sexual yeah, acts. Yeah, like that as well. That's a problem. Like, that's, that's bad. Um, where he's talking about being used or using. Um, yeah, and I think it got worse when he got older because when he yeah. started promoting um, the 
poison thing. I think it was like late ni- uh, early nineties. So I think he he almost like um he kind of for me he kind of peaked in early and then he got a bit weird when he sort of got a bit older. And I just think that this sort of promoting a disassociation stuff just super strange. It's almost like he's taking he's kind of very transgressive and he, and I think he can we can promote him for what a great advocate for gay rights around that time he was and he was he really was hmm. but then he almost takes it he's like oh how well maybe this should be extended to also men and boys having relationships and and I think that is a bit uh, a lot of people maybe have found that a bit too far <laughs> so yeah. you know it's sort of like yeah like relationships between men and a boy even if it's consenting isn't it's still pedophilia right yeah yeah totally um yeah, and, so but, but it depends on the terminology boy of course of course and this is where the debate is um what we're just talking about but um i i do like i um yeah, i i do agree with you that there are uh if not he um there are people around the big generation that are pedophilic and um but it is problematic his defense of anything like that as well yeah, but the actual, just to define boy, the actual association is to overturn the statutory rape laws and reduction of age of consent laws that require a child to be of a certain age. So it's definitely boy, as in boys, as in underage men. But this is um, an age where 21 is, is consensual age. Yeah, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is that they're trying to change laws around consent, whether it's 18 or 21. Yeah. Like, I just think that it, it's not like it's ambiguous. I think he was definitely, I mean... I think it's likely he was sleeping with underage men that are under 18. Mm. You know what I mean? So I just don't think it's about a definition term. I think it's about that aspect. No matter what, how we want to spin it, there's definitely some murky shit going on there. Mm. 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 Yeah. Um, Um, Hal didn't really have the inconsistent... Sorry. sorry, No, you go. Um, Hal didn't have much of the unconsensual aspects um, to sexual um, yeah. acts, but um, it does, it almost comes up. Um, and it's some of the gritty language that he use, uses. Um, like, you know, who slung over their, their windows in despair, fell out of the suburb, and jumped in filthy Pasic, uh, leaped on Negroes, cried all over the street, danced on open, on broken window glasses, barefoot, smashed phonographic records, nostalgic European 1930s. It just continues on, but there's, there's images there. He's using sexuality of, you know, jumped on and, yeah. whether it's, it's violence or it is, um, sexuality, it's, it's a problem. Um, but do you find that gets in the way of you like enjoying the poem or liking the poem? Um, I think he's he's using it in how as a shocking um, experience, um, and I think that it is a problem. Um, so for certain parts, yeah, I wouldn't read this um, to someone. Like I wouldn't read this to Jack, who's nine. I wouldn't like that's that's issue. There's issues with this. Yeah, I mean, I think we can still find value in it. I think we can talk about how it's problematic. We don't need to dwell on it. We can still find mm. value as a work of art, just as like we find value. Despite that, so I guess I'm finding a bit critical that you you couldn't look past the value in in Ellison's work because you don't like the way he promotes women. But you're finding you can find value in Ginsburg's uh, work, even though he has all these kind of weird pedophilia sort of undertones, consent undertones and everything like that. And so I think 
what I'm trying to make the point is like we don't need to dwell much on this on the context. We can just talk about the poem as a work of art as and critique it as a as an artwork as well as just maybe briefly mention the context. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. But there is like for Ellison's work, I know we've spoken about this a lot, but if you've got one out of the three characters which doesn't have a, a actual backstory as part yeah, of the well, story, that's don't have a backstory either, Ben. Like the women are just multitudes, a hundred women, and they're only mentioned are either in a mental institution or there's a multitude of women. But they're not but even they're, they're not even given a main character in this. That's well, that's the difference between the two. But the, the his his perspective of the beat generation, and he doesn't mention women at all. Hmm. So, what I mean, like, what's the difference there? They're both pieces of art. They both maybe have problematic backgrounds and they both don't portray women very well yeah. but the one you hate the other you like well ellison's making a point here, uh, painting a picture of a post-apocalyptic scene and telling you a story from the perspective of three different individuals going through life or a post-apocalyptic you know master computer you're existing inside of which yeah you know and there's five characters and one of them's a woman so in both of those regards everyone's given an equal footing and of those equal footings, I think that the men actually shine stronger um, because they've given um, backstories and given yeah. voices. Now, with this this story um, or this poem, it's not it's not in, constructed in the same way. The characters are not given voices at all, really. This is a description piece of the beat generation of the time, which did not have women as part of it. That women are just devoid. Absolutely. Well, they were part of it, but he's chosen to exclude them out. He's also he's also creating his own poem, his own story, from his own perspective, and he's chosen not to put women in there. So yeah. I just don't know. Like he gets, we get a fair bit of uh, incitement into Solomon. Uh, sorry, Solomon as a character. We don't really get any incitement into any female character. No, you don't, because he's he is homosexual. This is where his sexuality is lying. This is a homosexual poem. Yeah, I know. If, I just, if you I want to term, I don't think we can term it as a homosexual poem because I don't think it's right to do that. But I don't mean that in in a denigrating way. No, um, no, I understand. Yeah. I guess I'm being a bit tongue in cheek because I find like you're very happy to be super critical of um, Ellison, but you're not doing the same for How. And so why can't we do this? Can't you do the same feminist reading of this as he did for Ellison? So I don't think it's it's the problems lie with the feminist reading of this. I think the problem lies with the consensual element of this. I think that that's where Ginsburg's problems lie. And saying that you know he wishes someone to take him, or you know that's 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 a problem. It's a it's a big issue, and that's where I thought that. Um, uh, we would have been critiquing this, and, and I'm I'm happy to do that because that is that's not on. Um, you know, consensual uh, aspects of of sexuality needs to be as a, a front part of the engagement yeah. of of a inter interrelationship with a, another person. Um, that's how you treat the other person just as an equal. Um, yeah, I just think though that. That every the idea that every piece of text you read needs to, to tick five boxes on uh, social conscious, feminist voice, uh, all these sort of things is is just a bit unrealistic. I, I get it. It's in a setting how it wasn't written to, to necessarily include women. It's written about his gay experiences and the beat generation. It's not about women. It's a shame that the women aren't really mentioned. Just like I think Ellison's stories 
were written for other reasons. I think that um, the last one we read was written about machinery and control and psychoanalysis. It wasn't written as an ode to women. And no, it, no. So I feel like for me, it's sort of missing the point. It's like, let's talk about the things it's doing well and also the things maybe it's doing wrong, but let's not dwell too much on thinking each piece of art needs to represent every facet of political correctness. No, I don't, I don't think it needs to, but I think that if you are going to be painting a picture of that as five people living in an experience and then four of the people have got backstories and are actually given some light and then we, you know, this is with the video game of... Um, um, I have yeah, no, Ellison no. didn't. I mean, he wrote the script, but like he also had. Anyway, we don't need to talk about Ellison. No. I guess I'm trying to say is that let's just kind of keep it uh, fair and not just, you know, I think keep the critique fair to each text, or maybe we don't spend so much time talking about. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah, I think I think so, but I think we have to do call out things where there are issues, um, and I think that we've we've done it correctly with. Um, with Ginsburg as well, because um, there is a sexual element and there is the uh, consensual element, and we should call those out. Um, but there's also the other elements which he um, is engaging with the world, which is mental uh, mental illness um, and capitalism or being controlled by um, by the machine, if you like. Yeah. Um, no, I, I just don't think we should. I think we should dwell less on it because otherwise it, it could just become a discussion about kind of picking apart every text that we yeah. do based on social kind of and political, political correctness, which I think, yes, let's, like, mention it, but we really don't need to take up the whole yeah. talking about it. Yeah, yeah. no, granted. Um, so with the aspect of the Beat Generation, I think that there's this unrealistic component of it. Um, you know, Kerouac grew up at some point and stopped the on-the-road journey, the continual perpetual journey of not being connected to anything, and he slowed down and stopped. Um, I don't think Ginsburg did. Mm. I think that he continues on, and I think that that's where you've said um, correctly that he had it in the beginning and then sort of lost the way a little bit. Um, Do you think then almost that that this is representing almost a youth, like a youthful kind of uh, innocence that, that... the beat that kind of the vibe of the beat that maybe people kind of grow out of at a certain age. Yeah, I, th- I think so. But I think that there's also the realism of society that you need to get stuff done, right? So I have just gone on a trip to Brisbane and yeah, I spent a couple of weekends, um, you know, without Jody and the kids. And I was up until three o'clock in the morning and then up the next morning at 7 a.m. buying retro games and in pubs and playing games and doing this stuff, that's not sustainable for the rest of anyone's life. It's not possible to do that. And I think that you can have elements of that, but there is the realism or the reality of the world is that you need money to survive, you need a house to survive, and you can find enjoyment out of those things. Um, Yeah, I agree with you, especially the drug, like the heavy, heavy drug taking that, all of the beat poetry and stuff like that and i think that like you feel it's like you almost you can dabble in those feelings and you can totally get it and your heart kind of sings you're like oh this is really shit but at the end of the day we also <laughs> you have to pay the bills at the end of the day yeah. like it's like for me this is almost like a, a little taste of something that 
I maybe knew of once, but I, I don't really get it anymore. But I, I like, it's like a yearning. I think that's what it is. It's like a yearning for it that probably will never fulfill and, and that they probably didn't get to fulfill for very long because it's a very destructive life. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, you can't, you can't maintain. Absolutely. You can't take acid every day. Yeah. <laughs> you just can't. You can't take. You can't smoke copious amounts of marijuana constantly. That's yeah. Be like bad. I just imagine them being like, "No, no, like we're living the dream, bro." Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but they also, I think that this yeah, this is the two part aspect of it because we have here how written by Ginsburg, and he is um, he's. Uh, almost talking up those elements and then society being drawn down and then there's the feeling nature at the end of it. I don't think that, um, you know, if he was constantly drug-induced, which he, he sort of highlights at the beginning, if he would have written something like this, mm. he's coming off at some point. Yeah, and what what's interesting too, if you read it in the three parts, it's sort of like, you know, he's really, like, excited. He's talking about jazz music. He's talking about all the people. He's sexy, endless pocket balls, and it's all just, like, great. And then at the end, actually, he's really sad about mm-hmm. somebody he loves. And it's actually very, um, very kind of not wholesome. Wholesome and um, loving and an ode to a friend that, that he really cares about. And it's kind of different to this idea of this vagabond, like, sleeping with everybody, drinking, taking drugs. And I kind of think that he's like, it's like he's kind of saying, like, I'm doing all that, but, oh, man, I miss Carl. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Um, it's it's funny because, it, yeah, it, and the same thing that happens with um, Kerouac's um, book. You know, he writes that all this one standing long piece of On the Road and then he talks to a publisher to get it published and then goes through the rigmarole probably of sitting in a room and getting interviewed and then going through the editing process and going through these aspects of, of mundanity to get the story out there. And the story ultimately is one of freedom against what he's gone through the process of getting the story out there. It's this, this trans... Um, it's, it's quite strange, this disjointing, because if you think about it, just as um, a, a portion of um, uh, engagement, you don't really pick that up. But then you try and think about the aspect of, okay, I'm reading how on an internet page at the moment, you know, <laughs> which is has got paid hosting behind it and it would have had some sort of checking mechanism and it's some representation of some companies, a poetry foundation, etc. Yeah, all of these things are actually really constructionist but they're arguing for a deconstruction. Um, yeah, so it's like uh, we're still, I mean, he still had to go through that same process. I can just imagine mm. getting the publisher and being like, what, I can't just write this and then suddenly you take it and it's, and it's yeah. out there to the world. You mean I have to sit through all these meetings and stuff like that and, like, you know, you kind of, like, cramping my style. And, yeah. you know, it's meant to be this free movement and at the end of the day, as much as we might all hate capitalism, and I think a lot of us do, we still have to play by the rules to mm. be an artist. You can't be an artist on your own in your, in your kind of little world. You have to still go out there and meet people. You have to try and get contracts. You have to, and what, you have to do missions. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's yeah. like an artist in the world is not this sort of free, hippie thing anymore. I mean, I don't know even then if it was in the 60s or whatever. No, I don't think it was. 
I don't think yeah. it was. And I think there's an idealistic view of the world. Um, and I don't think that that's a sad thing. I don't think that, oh, what, you know, what a drag. Now we actually all have to be part of the machine and this is what it is. I think that you can actually make the machine work for yourself if you're given the right tools um, or if you know what you want and try and, um, you know, um, have the mechanisms work towards you. Sure, there's going to be some people that, that can't happen to and can't work for. Um, and this is the tragedy of human nature that some people won't actually achieve these things, um, or tragedy of human society, rather. However, um, there are some people that can find enjoyment in these small pleasures, um, and that is enough. And that, I think, is the whole point, that um, you move towards these things. But just on the deconstruction side of things, um, there are people like philosophers that try and struggle with these things, and Derrida is one of them, you know, the, the father of deconstructionism, really. Um, and he used to get his publisher to change the typesetting on the books so that book, words that he has written would then have a crossed out line through them or, you know, different, would change words around and change font types. And it would have been a nightmare to deal with this guy as a publisher. Can you imagine? Like, previously, everything's written in the same font. You know, we all have this same fontness. And here comes Derrida going, no, 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 I don't mean other as in other. I don't mean other as in capital O. I mean, other as in crossed out other, because you can't define what other is. The no. people at the corpus at the table would be going, what the fuck is this guy talking about? <laughs> Just let's do it, because he sells a lot of books. Um, and, yeah, I think that sometimes you need that other voice in the room of pushing against the rules as well. And that's yeah, where it's I funny. Think... It's an interesting point, though, because I feel like we always admire, though, the people that are kind of maybe doing it in a way that's sort of, you know, giving it to the man and, and kind of staying true to their artistic roots and then not realising that, like, they're still having to go through the same sort of processes. But we admire the rebel, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that, I don't know, I, I, I like the Beat Generation for that, for, for pushing against, but I don't like the... Um, um, the perpetual idealism that can be taken from those aspects. Um, you know, back back many, many years ago when I had friends from um, different circles, you had people. I thought that was him. Huh? I thought that was a, just went back when you had friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at one point when I had more than one friend. Um, uh, you know, I had people from these circles that, that did I idolise um, these people just as a, a way of life. Mm. Um, no, definitely. I know people like that too. Yeah. And then they'll look at me like strange because, you know, they were university students or whatever, and I, I was working during the time because I came to university quite late in life. And I'm like, well, yeah, I can still read philosophy. I can still read history. I can still read these things and be interested in them. I don't have to do that full time because I actually like having a wage so that I can buy cool things. Like these yeah. Sega games, you know, <laughs> at the time it was just something menial like that. But um, that was my choice. And no, I it's true. And I, and I find it a bit um, hypocritical, a lot of it too, because a lot of the, I find these people that are super into like socialism and stuff too often live at home. They still, you know, they still have a pretty well-supported family. Like they're not poor, you know. I feel like there's a level of idealism in here that also means that you have some sort of income as well. Otherwise, mm, you can't really mm, do it. Mm. Otherwise, you have to be working. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't really survive, they say, without earning an income or living at home. Do you know what I'm saying? So I kind of find that a 
find it a bit hypocritical too, where it's like we're living in the dream, we're living out, and like you know, I'm sure yeah. that a lot of them still get supported pretty heavily from their families to be able to maintain that kind of yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. You know, what would have Ginsburg's dad said? <laughs> I know you didn't listen to him, but you know, like, yeah. you're right. I don't know. You're it's right. just a bit it's... silly sometimes. It's yeah. kind of like if you had to work, you wouldn't have the time, but you have to just work. Yeah, yeah. And um, you and I know people <laughs> without naming names that are um, argue for these socialist um, components, but when push comes to shove, dad will be there. You know, yeah. Daddy will help you out. That's that's the, what's going to happen. Um, and oh, what's that that song that's sung by? Um, who is it? Uh, Captain Kirk does a reading of it. Um, but it's a, it's about um, a, a woman who who wants to experience what life is like and life is to be poor. Um, uh, and you know the the singer calls her out on it and says, "Look, that's." Um, it's not idyllic. You, you, you can't live like someone who's free and poor because your father will always come and save you. That's... Yeah, definitely. No, so when I read it, it's sort of like, oh, that's nice. But yeah, that isn't this nice sentiment. Like, but at the end of the day, I'm not part of this generation. Like, I, I share a lot of the ideas, but I don't necessarily share the means or the ways that a lot of people like to go about things. Mm hmm. But I do like pretending for a minute that we have a lot of choice in the things we do. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like, but you know what I mean. No, 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 I know what you mean. Um, Common People by Pulp is the, the name of the, the song. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but I, I love the way some of the phrases sound like when he's just saying boxcar and he repeats it three times and it sounds like a train going past. And mm -hmm. when he does the, the saxophone one where it's like, oh, what's the line? Like Lama Lama saxophone. Where is that? Yeah. You know the one I yeah, mean, right? yeah. So uh, Ambrose reincarnate in ghost, ghostly clothes of jazz in gold horn shadow of a band that and blue the suffering of America's naked mind for the love of Eli Eli Lama Lama Sinchani saxophone cry that shivered in the cities down to the last radio. Yeah, I love that. I love some of the imagery in that as well, just like as a those yeah. phrases are just really cool. Mm. I like um some of the staccato points that he, he you know um, raises as well. The absolute harsh of life butchered out of their own uh, bodies. These the, the poetry of the feet poet poets don't rhyme. It's not yeah. that's not the point. It's um you know it's about uh doing this this rhythm uh, rhythmic expression of um um. Uh, yeah, rhythmic expression of feeling, really. Yeah, definitely. That's what they're trying to do. And they're just getting words to match their, their poems and what they're, they're meaning all the time. And it's messy. And it's uh, sometimes it doesn't work and sometimes it does. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I kind of like the the sound of it and the rhythmic. And I think hearing it spoken in like a beats poetry reading would be much more interesting than reading it or even listening to videos of it. I think being in the room and... Having so, and I've heard a couple of these poems, and I think when they're done well, it's really quite a good experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, I can also think it, it could be horrible as well, but you know, it's... <laughs> but I yeah, yeah, but that's just the I nature. Think I find poetry a little bit difficult to kind of get involved. I think I'm more visual, I like, or I like more stories rather than 
poetry myself. I don't watch or listen. Sorry, I don't listen. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a it's an acquired taste sometimes, but um, it's been good to talk about poem. Anyway, I think it's yeah. um, it's interesting, and I, I definitely think that this is um, in the realm of tabooness. Oh um, yeah. Yeah, he's he's out there. He's out there. Yes. Hmm. Uh, well, anything more on this first before we talk about what we're doing next week? Um, no. I, all in all, I do like the poem. I think I don't like necessarily the lack of women in the beat um, kind of era yeah. um, poem, and I don't like the sexual. Uh, I don't. Want, I don't know how to say it, but weird sex stuff um, that Ginsburg practiced on yeah. that side of poetry. Yeah. Um, and and that kind of thing, but I think it. Um, I'm not going to say it was all part of a certain year and a certain group of people spending time, but I think partially, maybe not some of the attitudes were definitely reminiscent of a time where women weren't, but women were slowly trying to have a voice. You know, it's also a remnant of its time, I think, of being in the 60s. So, you know, there's a certain level of context, but there's also a certain level of, like, you know, consent and stuff matters and all that sort of stuff. But mm. I just think, yeah, we don't need to dwell too much on those sorts of aspects in the in our analysis, but I like I like how. Mm. I think that is all fair. So, how many Molochs out of Moloch would you give it? I'm going to give it seven out of ten Molochs. I actually agree with you. Seven out of ten Molochs for me. Um, so, I think that um, it's a very good poem. I think it's a more of a performance piece than a poem, though. So, if we are going to engage with it just as a written form, um, mm. I think that it doesn't actually hold up as much as what it would have uh, been as a deliverable um, uh, poem. Um, but I think that there are problems with it. Um, uh, the women aspect, of, um, for me, is is a small part. I think that the more the, the bigger problematic thing is the aspect of consensuality around yeah. it. So the, the odd sexuality. I don't struggle to come to terms with it. When you were saying it, I think, you know, straight away I thought of sexual liberation or, you know, liberty, but it's not really. It's, um, you know, it's it's not sexual liberty to talk about um, having unconsensual sex with someone. Um, no, particularly I think maybe minor. he thought it was, and that's yeah. what I think. He maybe thought he was being taking this. Oh, not. I don't think he related to homosexuality, but I mean, like, just taking certain sexual freedoms to an extreme where, you know, it. He almost deserves a certain amount of sex, or I don't know how to explain it, but mm-hmm. almost it's too gone to a bit too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so seven out of ten, I think, seems fair. Yeah. Um, and that is that. Uh, next week. Camus. Camus. Uh, talking about taboo. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk about uh, Myth of Sisyphus, um, which is a book that he wrote. Uh, we will be talking about the aspects of uh, giving up in life and possibly continuation in the perpetual journeys, which is stuff I am very much into and I'm very excited for when you read it. Um, yeah. To talk about Because so- we've been talking about this for a, a number of years now, two years I think we've, we've started being, talking about this and you're finally going to get there and we'll read it together and it'll be fun. Oh, um, to close off, uh, I found a recording, um, well it wasn't that hard, but Ballad of the Skeletons, which is a song which came out in the mid-90s um, and has Allen Ginsberg's voice in the background um, and it actually 
I will give you the hottest 100 Triple J because it's in the hottest 100 of 1996. Um, it was actually on the CD as well, and it got to number eight out of 100 for that year. Ballad of the Skeletons um, by Allen Ginsberg, and it is amazing, um, quite odd, and I think this gives a good expression of what his poetry um, and how it should be performed. Okay, see you next time. Bye. Enjoy. Bye. Said the presidential skeleton, I won't sign the bill. Said the speaker skeleton, yes, you will. Said the representative skeleton, I object. Said the Supreme Court skeleton, what do you expect? Said the old Christ skeleton, care for the poor. Said the son of God skeleton, AIDS needs cure. Said the homophobe skeleton, gay folks suck. Said the heritage policy skeleton, blacks are out of luck. Said the macho skeleton, women in their place. Said the fundamentalist skeleton, increase the human race. Said Nancy skeleton, just say no. Said the Brasta skeleton, blow Nancy, blow. Demagogue skeleton, don't smoke pot. Said the alcoholic skeleton, let your liver rot. Said the junkie skeleton, can't we get a fix? Said the big brother skeleton, jail the jerks for kicks. Said the mirror skeleton, hey, good looking. Said the electric chair skeleton, hey, what's cooking? Talk show skeleton, muck you in the face. Said the family values skeleton, my family values mace. Said the New York Times skeleton, that's not fit to print. Said the CIA skeleton, can't you take a hint? Skeleton, believe my lies. Said the advertising skeleton, don't get wise. Said the media skeleton, believe you me. Said the couch potato skeleton, 
What me worry? To the TV skeleton, eat sound bites. To the newscast skeleton, that's all for night.